Okay, we're going to read God's Word. This is Acts chapter 27, verse 13. This is, you'll know the story, I'm sure it's the story of Paul and the shipwreck. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going, to, we're going to look at the whole chapter in a moment or two, but just going to read from verse 13 through to verse 26. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster swept down from the island The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it on board. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And ending at verse 26, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. How do you feel about boat trips? My first wife hated them. She didn't really like flying either, so getting anywhere from these islands was remarkably difficult. But anyway, she really didn't like boat trips. And I remember one fateful trip from Portsmouth to Cherbourg going for a holiday in France where most people on the boat seemed to be sick at some point. I was actually okay, but to be honest, the thought of eating on the boat and that, you know, we needed to eat on the boat because we had a long journey after we got off. The thought of eating on the boat was challenging. Anyway, we just about managed it. My, one of my younger children, my son Matthew, he fell asleep on the boat while we were trying to eat. And he woke up about a half an hour later. And as soon as he woke up, he said, oh, I'm hungry. Can I eat now? And he had a big feed and he was perfectly okay. Everybody else didn't seem to be. But actually, I was all right, <clears throat> and I put my sea legs down to the exotic holidays of my youth spent in places like Portrush, Donegal, and even Donica Dee. Yes, I holidayed in Donica Dee. And fortnights there were nothing if not exciting, especially going deep sea fishing with my dad. Trips around the Copeland Islands are hardly the same territory as you see on something like the Trawler Men or some sort of television program like that. But anyway, they were exciting. And I do remember as a primary school-aged child being in one of those boats 
after a fruitless afternoon spent catching nothing but my dad's fishing line and getting caught in a sudden thunderstorm, huddling together in the rain and the hail, feeling excited and terrified all at the same time on the trip back to the harbor. That's the nearest I have come to the experience of Paul and his companions in Acts chapter 27, although admittedly there is a huge difference in scale. It was just a brief thunderstorm a few miles off the shore at Donica Day. It was not a fortnight in a storm such as you see in the story, but it's as close as I can get to it. This was an Alexandrian grain ship. One of the interesting facts is that the fleet of boats that spent most of their time taking grain from wherever it was growing to supply the needs of the Roman Empire and particularly the capital city in Rome itself. The fleet that actually did that, the mercantile fleet sailing then on the Mediterranean was the largest mercantile fleet in the world until the early 1700s. It's amazing to think about carrying 250 or more tons of cargo, mostly grain, and 276 passengers and crew. The boat runs into a storm which sets them adrift for a fortnight, during much of which they saw neither the sun by day nor the stars by night. Small wonder that Dr. Luke comments in verse 20, all hope of our being saved was given up. Of course, With the benefit of hindsight, we know that although the ship was lost and all its cargo, every single one of the 276 people on board made it safely to shore on Malta. But not before Paul makes that incredible intervention that we read about a moment or two ago. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Paul's presence stands out here. He alone anticipates the danger before they sailed and prophesies the ultimate outcome of what is going to take place. Now, one of the interesting things about that is, just as a side note as we look through, if you read the earlier part of the chapter, you'll see that Paul's initial prophecy was not entirely accurate because his initial prophecy, which you'll see in verse 10 of the chapter, prophesied that some lives would be lost. Much time has been lost, he said, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Later in the journey, however, he prophesies differently. Verse 22, not one of you will be lost. Verse 34, not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. This is hugely encouraging. 
People often hold back from giving prophetic words or insights that they think the Lord has given them just in case it's not entirely accurate. Didn't seem to bother Paul. He shared the word later. He corrected it with better understanding of what the Lord's purposes were. Mistakes happen in prophecy. We can be sorry about that. We can apologize about that. But it shouldn't prevent us from sharing words we believe the Lord has given us. So Paul prophesies, furthermore, he had the ear of the centurion Julius who was charged with conveying the prisoners to Rome. Now, most of the prisoners in this ship were convicted criminals, bound in chains, destined for the arena to perish for the entertainment of the crowds like Maximus, Decimus, Meridius in the film Gladiator. Treated normally like scum, these prisoners were. But there was something different about Paul that even a Roman centurion couldn't miss. And there was his calm leadership in the midst of turmoil. Even the crew had given up and made an escape attempt when Paul calls them all to courage and then later to eating a little food before the shipwreck and leads the way himself. Verse 35 said, after he had said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And every step along the way, the person providing leadership on the boat was Paul. How was this so? What was it that was different about him? I think you get a clue to that in verse 23 that we read a moment or two ago, where Paul says this, Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And when we read this text, we tend to think that Paul was different because he was visited by an angel. And we have a tendency to think that it was easy for first century believers and especially for apostles because they had these rare experiences of angels and other sensational things, and we don't. And I'm not so sure that these things are as uncommon as we sometimes suggest that they are. Um, We looked after my father-in-law, Uh, In the last five and a half years of his life, he stayed with us in our home. He had cancer, and he had good days and bad days. And eventually, towards the end of his life, he spent the last 13 weeks of his life in the Matter Hospital. And his going into hospital was a traumatic moment because I think he knew and we knew that he probably wasn't coming home. And so it was a a tough moment for my father-in-law, who then was 94 years of age, still in possession of all his faculties. And so going into hospital, the trauma of it and what it meant for him and for the rest of us, it was hard. And I remember when we went to visit him the next day, he said this really strange thing to us. He said, you know, he said, the funny thing was, every time I woke up last night, there was a person sitting beside my bed. And he said, they must have been there all night. Because every time I woke up and looked over, they were there. But when I woke up in the morning, finally, at breakfast time, they weren't there. 
And my first wife and I thought when he told us the story, we knew it wasn't a member of staff in the hospital whom he saw every time he woke up. We wondered if it was an angel, if there was a messenger from the Lord to comfort an old man whose circumstances were radically changing and he couldn't do anything about it. Maybe these things are not as uncommon as we think they are. Paul sees an angel. The angel comes to him. But that actually wasn't what made him different. He was different for another reason altogether. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. Paul reveals in that sentence what was different about him. His self-consciousness of whose I am, and whom I serve. And it turns out that if I want to make a difference, then I need to know whose I am and whom I serve. And that's what I want to think about for a moment or two. The first one is this. Paul knew whose he was. The conventional wisdom of our culture tells us, tells me that I am lost if I don't know who I am. But the gospel reminds me that I am lost if I don't know whose I am. Paul had only one message. Keeps coming up over and over and again in his writings. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. Paul had one desire. Philippians 3 and 10. I want to know Christ. Paul had one destination. Philippians 1 and 23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul had one Lord. Philippians 3 and 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I could go on. But perhaps nothing he wrote expresses it more fully than Philippians 1 and 21. For me to live is Christ. Paul knew whose he was. As a country, we've just been through an election and the normal conflict of loyalties that every election involves. And sometimes we're a bit confused about our loyalties in life. And when Paul acknowledged Jesus as Lord, what we have to understand is that he wasn't putting Jesus at the top of a tree of graduated loyalties. God, the monarchy, the nation, the family, the church. In Paul's case, Paul was making a choice that there can ever be only one Lord and only one loyalty. And that loyalty to Christ regulated all his other relationships. It's one reason why I love the title song on the Hillsong United album of a number of years ago. It was called Empires. And part of one of the verses of the title song goes like this, Beneath our skin, a new creation. The night is done, our chains are broken. Our time has come. The wait is over. The king is here. His name is Jesus. One loyalty, one Lord. Paul knew whose he was. 
I remember at one stage struggling um, when I was ministering current money, wrestling with my hunger for a deeper renewal and filling of the Holy Spirit and the life of the church, always wanting more. And I remember in one particular season feeling really desperate about it. And in that season, I thought I heard God say to me, you can have this, but you can only have it if you also desire it for all the rest of the church as well. Paul's recognition of the lordship of Christ makes him do something similar here. In these verses, we learn that the angel tells Paul that God is literally giving him the present of the lives of all 275 other crew and passengers on his ship. That's what it says, that God has given this to you as a gift. How was that a present to Paul? Well, there can only be one answer to that question because that's what Paul had been praying for. You can imagine him on the ship praying for the other people who were on board, for Julius, for his traveling companions, for the the crew who were actually taking care of the ship. Praying for this because for Paul, only everyone will be enough. He wasn't just asking for his own redemption, his own salvation, his own rescue from a terrible plight. He was saying to God, it's not enough. I need you to give me all the others as well. And when you look at the Scripture, very often those who know whose they are have exactly the same attitude to everyone else around them. Moses, years before Paul, standing in the one place where what he was asking for could be granted to him, said, erase my name from the book of life, but save all the others. What an incredibly courageous request. Standing before the person who could grant him that request, he said, I don't care if it means me being cut off, but I want you to save all the others. Only everyone will be enough. And sometimes it's possible in the life of the church to get to a point where we would be prepared to settle for less than the salvation of everyone. There's only so much we can do, even in cooperation with others. There's only so much resource that we have to employ. The fact is that if we are settling for less than everyone, it's not the product of a lack of evangelistic zeal. It's a product of misplaced loyalty. We don't know whose we are. That was the first great thing that made Paul different on this ship. He was an entirely independent person moving in the relationships that were forming among the people that he shared this traumatic experience with. But he stood out because he knew whose he was, and because he knew whose he was, he asked for all the rest as well. We need to know whose we are. We need to know to whom we belong. And having got that loyalty right in our lives, then that loyalty positions us in all our other relationships in an entirely different way from lots of other people around us. And it gives us a passion for everyone. Paul knew whose he was. I need to know whose I am, but I also need to know whom I serve. 
it's important to notice that being comes before doing. So Paul knew whose he was as well as knowing what he was supposed to do. He is an activist whose I am and whom I serve. And for many of us, I think when I read that verse, for me certainly, and for many of us I'm sure, that's a relief because for us the Christian life has been about service. We've served on committees, on campaigns, on summer teams, in church, in work, in our neighborhood, in youth, in middle age and old age, as staff, as volunteers. We are the first to arrive and the last to leave. Our life has been like that. And Paul was the same. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul knew what service meant. He was an activist. And sometimes you might feel like you've experienced some of the things on that list if you're a volunteer or a servant about a church. But the point is that service is not about being busy and making sacrifices, although mostly it will involve that. You get a better clue about it when you see how N.T. Wright translates these words. He translates them like this. This last night, you see, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship stood beside me. The character of our service is worship. And the angel goes on to say to Paul in verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Why was Paul on this ship on his way to trial before the emperor? Why? Not to stake his claim for earthly justice, but to witness to the claims of the eternal Lord before the temporal Lord of the greatest empire of his day. It was an act of worship. And you see it later as he encourages his shipmates to eat and pauses to say grace before breaking and distributing the bread. It was an act of worship. And his leadership on the boat was not because he was someone who just naturally took charge, but because he believed the word of the Lord to him. It was an act of worship. Wherever he was, whatever he did, He was consciously in the presence of Jesus in adoration and wonder. And you see this again and again in the the stories of the people you read about in the book of the Acts and in the early New Testament church. Like Stephen being stoned to death 
for his witness to Jesus. And as he is there in the pit of stones, he sees heaven open. He sees Jesus. He testifies to it. It was an act of worship. Or John, with his parchment, feverishly writing down the visions that God was giving him, trying to accurately record the things that he was seeing in exile. It was an act of worship. That is the character of our service. Paul didn't need the stars or the sun to locate himself. He just needed the consciousness of the presence of his Lord. And this consciousness renewed in him through the filling of the Holy Spirit allowed his whole life to become an act of worship. And many of us need to hear this because the reality is in the day-to-day for some of us, this may seem odd to many of you who are normal people, but for people who are not normal like me, who actually love the church, you know, and have loved it practically our whole lives, there, there is a prayer in the Presbyterian service of ordination and installation, I, and I particularly love this prayer. It goes like this, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, we give thanks for your goodness to mankind in giving your Son to be our Savior your spirit to be our life and power, and your church to be our home. I love that prayer. I remember once saying to a colleague who, who, who agreed with me and who is now in a significant position in our denomination that for me, loving Jesus was about loving the church. Really? Really? Loving Jesus is about loving Jesus. Serving is not about business. It is about worship. And sometimes I think we get that wrong. Quite rightly, in church, we, we work to, to, to try and develop a connection between Sunday and Monday. And that is good, that the pressure is on, that what we do here has to have some relevance, has to, has to help in some way with what we're going to encounter in the ordinary work of Monday to Friday and, and so on. And so it's right, obviously, that we work to make this relevant to the rest of the week. But actually, what is potentially more important is that Monday becomes more like Sunday. And, and I don't mean by that that we give up normal work to start working for the church that's not what I mean. But what I mean is that the spirit of what we are doing here, the consciousness that we have here of the presence of God and the importance of laying our lives out before him should be just as real on the Monday as it is right now. The connection is that we need to work at perhaps is not so much making Sunday relevant to Monday as making Monday a consequence of Sunday. Christian service is no more worship than singing songs is worship unless the heart makes it an offering. It was the character and not the type of Paul's work that counted. He describes it himself in this way in Philippians 2 and 17. Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. He saw his life as an offering poured out before God 
I don't know if he was thinking about a particular story when he wrote those words, but he might have been. It was a story that concerns David in the Old Testament when he was forcibly in exile because of the animosity of Saul. He was there with a small band of men who had been loyal to him. And one evening he said, just off the tip of his tongue, what wouldn't I give right now for a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem? And three of his closest friends, the most courageous of his men, snuck out and went to Bethlehem and drew water from the well and brought it back to David and gave it to him to drink. Here you are, sir. You wanted to drink from the well in Bethlehem. Here is the water. David didn't drink it. He said he couldn't drink it because the water had been brought to him at potentially the cost of the lives of the three men who had gone to get it. And he took the water that had been brought to him and he poured it out on the ground as an offering to the Lord. And I wonder if Paul had that story in mind when he wrote those words. Paul, who had been redeemed, considered that he could not spend on himself the costly purchase of his own life, so he poured it out before the Lord as an act of worship. This life is worth way too much as a result of the cost of its purchase in the death of the Lord Jesus. This life of mine is worth way too much to be spent on me. It was given to me to pour out as an offering to the Lord. Paul knew whose he was. He wasn't confused about his loyalties. He didn't have multiple layers of loyalty. He had one loyalty to one Lord, and that loyalty to that one Lord governed and arranged all his other relationships in life. He knew whose he was, and he knew whom he served. He realized that his life was for service and that the character of that service was worship. It was poured out before the Lord as an offering. If we want to stand out, if we want to be different from the people around us and their values and their way of life, then the only way that can really happen and we can begin to become influential wherever we work or wherever we live on whatever our particular interests and pursuits are, the only way we will ever be different from the crowd is if we know whose we are and whom we serve. Let's pray. Maybe this is time just to take a moment for reflection. It's so easy in the busyness of life and in the challenges and responsibilities that we have to be torn by numerous different loyalties and demands made by all sorts of people. It can't have been any different for Paul. In his life, he had the daily concerns of all the churches he had planted. He lived with animosity and opposition and all sorts of difficulties. It would have been so easy to be pulled in a thousand directions but that didn't happen to him. Maybe this is a moment to acknowledge that that's where we've allowed ourselves to be and to be reminded just now 
by the Holy Spirit of whose we are and whom we serve. Father God, thank you for the calling that is upon the lives of all those who know you and love you, who have become followers of your Son and vessels of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, God grant us to refocus and recenter our lives and our hearts just now. That in this moment, we might remember whose we are and in the responsibilities of the week ahead, remember that that life of ours is an act of service, an act of worship. Help us to repent of bad attitudes, Lord, to be careful about those who exercise a large influence upon our lives, to invite your Holy Spirit to fill us afresh just now so that we might more adequately serve you in the simple, ordinary things of life. Give us everyone, Lord, we pray. In the life of this church, may there be no limits on the heart of their vision. In Jesus' name, amen.